You're listening to B2B Nation, a podcast from Technology Advice, designed to help marketers navigate the modern B2B buyer's journey. Here's your host, Mike Pastor. Everywhere I've looked over the past couple of months, I keep seeing the word burnout. The World Health Organization now recognizes burnout as a serious problem. About half of marketers, according to a recent survey, said they have felt burnout in the past year. And among the people in tech who many B2B marketers are targeting with messages, the numbers are even higher. I'm Mike Pastor from Technology Advice. Regular listeners might remember Rob Bogue from our episode on how understanding change management can make you a better marketer. It's one of the episodes people cite most often when they contact me about this podcast. But in 2019, Rob and his wife Terry wrote a book called Extinguish Burnout and developed an online course with the same name. Little did they know how important the issue of burnout would become at the time. Little did I know a year ago that I'd be recording an episode of B2B Nation about burnout. But here we are. If you're feeling the effects of burnout, manage people who could be on the verge of burnout, or have an interest in how you sell or market to people who themselves are burned out, give this episode a listen. One of the things I didn't know going into this episode is the close link between burnout and depression. So your health will thank you for better understanding what burnout is and how it works. Rob Bogue, for our audience members who missed the episode on why change management can make you a better marketer, tell us who you are and what it is you do. Uh, so my background, uh, technology, um, you and I met, um, I don't want to tell everybody it was two decades ago, uh, but uh, I've been taking care of people and trying to apply technology to that um, and have done a lot of things over that time, but the change management certainly one of them, done a lot of Microsoft SharePoint and those sorts of rollouts. Uh, and then there's the reason for talking again, which is the work that I did back in 2019 with my wife on the Extinguished Burnout book. What is burnout? It's one of those things, I think, to paraphrase a U.S. Supreme Court justice talking about a very, very different topic. He said, I know it when I can see it. I feel yeah. that way about burnout, right? If I feel it coming on in myself, I recognize it. If I see it in somebody else who's pretty burnt out, I think I can recognize it. But what is it? Yeah, I think so. Classically, it's been defined with three characteristics. There's exhaustion, cynicism, and inefficacy. And so let me break that down because you're like, okay, well, those are really big, nice words. First of all, exhaustion's a red herring. Um, we have all done things where we have been the most engaged that we've ever been in our life. We have been, you know, maybe doing a, a skiing exercise or we're just doing something that just having so much fun. And you get back to the hotel room at the end of the night and you fall in the bed and you're in a, like a micro coma. You've, you've forgotten to take your clothes off. You're still on top and you're exhausted, but you're having the time of your life. So so the three criteria, that one kind of drops away. The second one's cynicism. And I'm going to come back to it because it's one of those things that is the result of burnout, not the cause. They've got kind of the causal arrow, arrow pointed in the wrong direction. So that leaves us back to this, just this last piece, which is inefficacy. And inefficacy is interesting because it's our perception of whether we're being effective or not. And, and I emphasize perception because that's actually what matters. If you take a look at the work of uh, Martin Seligman and some of his colleagues, Steve Mayer particularly, 
they discovered back in the 1970s learned helplessness this idea that you know if you if you put a dog and by the way he he's clear that he did, wouldn't have started this way but he was in a lab that did this and they and they take a, a dog and they give it a mild shock and they can't get out and if he does that again even if they can they they don't get out they've learned that they're helpless uh and and more recently they've learned that what actually happened is they failed to learn control but the point is inefficacy is a powerful driver for us. Our feeling of inefficacy, our inability to get things done is a powerful driver. And so that is really at the heart of burnout. When you feel ineffective, when you feel like you can't get anything done, that's when you're in burnout. Now, I told you to come back to cynicism and there, there's a reason for that. And that's because you become cynical when you no longer believe you can change anything. If you think of the proverbial old guys sitting on the front porch and rocking chairs, talking to each other, playing checkers, right? Well, I remember when that they're cynical because they no longer believe that they can change the world. And so you put this all together. So we got the three criteria and cynical is the result and exhaustion doesn't matter. And we're left. All we're left with is this inefficacy in learning how to manage our feelings about whether we're effective or not. So the past year has highlighted all sorts of things about work, about our society. And I think one of the things it's shown a light on is work-life balance, which is hard to do when a lot of people are working from home. I've been working from home for the better part of a decade. And I feel like I usually can do that because I'm practiced at it. Right. And burnout. Right. So a lot of attention on burnout, like I said, is why we wanted to have this conversation. Having a lot of burned out people is not good, <laughs> I would assume. Right. But the recognition and the attention, like I said, I see burnout everywhere I look, is probably somewhat of a good thing. We see the World Health Organization is going to recognize burnout as a as a condition. An and occupational phenomenon. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Like, what is so this, a UFO? Maybe not quite a condition. But, but for people who are cynical about the existence of burnout and is burnout a thing and then the, the kind of suck it up culture, um, I, it's probably good. I see it everywhere because it means we're talking about it. I think it's, I definitely think it's good that we're talking about it. I think, you know, if I, if I broaden this for just a moment, the fact that we're talking about mental health is super important. We have this massive stigma against mental health. And I really, um, I'm, I'm enlivened by the, the idea that we can talk about mental health issues. Um, I'm frustrated that the conversation about burnout is still got that mental health stigma to it. Well, you're not good enough. And that's why you got burnout. You're, it's your fault that you're burnout. Right. And, and I, and I really hate that. I think, a couple of things. I wrote about this. I actually looked this up before June 23rd of 2003 was the first time that I had an article post about burnout. And it it hasn't really changed all that much. It's still the same thing. It's you feel like uh, particularly folks who are in technology jobs feel like, oh, you know, it's another day. It's another hundred tickets or it's another 20 tickets or whatever it is that they work. And, you know, marketers, the same thing. And I think that the conversation about mental health is good. I think the, the the problem is we don't understand it. There's a lot of uh, research. If you go all the way back to um, Frudenberger, who's the first guy that wrote about burnout, 
1974, I think. And it's a lot about how he was trying to do things in a, in a place in the city and he felt like he wasn't getting anything accomplished. But I think we've, we've turned this into a, well, we want this to be something different, but in a lot of ways, it's still coming back to that same mental health issue. And burnout is an easier thing to say to people than you're depressed. Now, there is a lot of antidepressants being sold today um, and not that there's anything wrong with that. It's not a bad thing, right? But but d- depression is a stigma that burnout doesn't. But a lot of the research is saying burnout is sort of an early indicator for depression. Like this is this is the edge, the precipice that you stand upon and you can go forward and fall into depression or you can take a step back from it and and hopefully feel better. When we talked about change management, you did a really interesting rundown of what stress is and how yep. we as humans have subsumed stress. We took this thing that I see a lion, I should run. That was kind of a short-term temporary thing. We turned it into this long-lasting negative influence, right? We get stressed out about work, about a project at work, and maybe it lasts months and it negatively impacts us. I guess my question is, did we invent burnout? You, You mentioned it was first written about in 1974. I was born in 1974. I grew up in a neighborhood that was like young families like mine, but also a mix of these older couples. And the guys were like machinists who worked in factories in the city nearby. Yeah. Did they get burned out or, or did they feel it, but we didn't have a name for it? I think it's, I think it's a little bit uh, of our perceptions have shifted. So we have different expectations, right? If you're a machinist, you expected you were going to be a machinist your entire life. Um, and honestly, it was a great profession, right? Machinists were, really skilled artisans, but we've lost our anchoring. And so our perception of our efficacy is keeps changing. So, you know, if you're a machinist, you output a part and you know whether that part is good or not. Somebody in quality is going to check it and they put the calipers on it and it's good or bad. When you produce a podcast, when I write a program or I build a course, how do you measure that? So I think it's been with us. I think it's worse because we don't have those specific fixed endpoints that we can judge against. And as a result, we hold ourselves to too high of expectations. Um, you know, you mentioned this idea we're all working from home and everybody's, everybody has to figure out work-life balance and you've been doing it for a decade and I've been doing it for a similar time frame. And what's different is you expect to be as productive in your house at the kitchen table on a hard wooden chair as you would be in the office. And in the office, the kids are not screaming in the background because they're on Zoom calls with their school and you don't have to stop the dog from barking and, and, and. And so you've got this expectation that your performance is going to be X when in reality, your expectation should be, it should be X minus Y, some delta of of what you should get done. So I don't think we invented it. I think we have fallen into it through those lack of standards and holding ourselves to, to expectations that are just not real. The advantage that I have, and I'm very fortunate in that because I have worked from home for so long, I have a dedicated space and my kids are young. They, when dad's at work, he's at work. When he's in office, he's at work. Um, That it's been that way for them since they were born. Right. So I can't imagine trying to do what I do from the dining room table. 
Yeah. <laughs> and I know there's millions of people in that situation. Right. And it's, you know, it's, it's dumb luck, you know, I, I'm fortunate. I'm fortunate. Right. A lot of things that a lot of people have had to deal with over the past year haven't really affected me. This is Mike Pastor from Technology Advice. We're talking to Rob Bogue about how burnout affects marketers and their marketing. Just a reminder that the next installment of Technology Advice Demand Fest, the half-day virtual conference for B2B marketers, is coming up on April 6th, and you are invited. And you can learn more, see the program, and RSVP at demandfest.tech. Let's get back to our conversation with Rob. There was a study that found 50% of marketers say they felt burned out in the past year. And that got me thinking, do certain job roles have a higher likelihood of experiencing burnout? Right? I could see that if you're an executive, you have more responsibility, it's more stress, potentially more likelihood of feeling burned out. But does somebody say in a creative role, are they more or less likely to feel burned out than say a data analyst? Is there any sort of connection between what you do and the likelihood that you'll be burned out? Um, there is, uh, but it's not the kind of straight line that you probably, probably everybody would love to have. I think that first of all, I tell you when I when I have these talks, and Terry and I will go and we're at a conference, and this is obviously pre-COVID. Um, we walk into the room and right, and I go, okay, so how many of you have ever felt burnout? And almost universally, ninety-five percent of the hands to hundred percent of the hands are coming up, right? Like everybody's felt burnout, and it's this universal thing. We, we, we've all felt like we've been ineffective that, that, you know, maybe there's too much friction. Maybe there's all these other things. Uh, so I think that it's, it's fairly universal. What I would say about the role and how that impacts it is back in 2001, Richard Florida wrote a book, the rise of the creative class. And he started talking about the fact that we're doing things more heuristically. We're not machinists carving out parts. We're artists who are producing podcasts and who are creating marketing pieces. And, and we're doing all of this stuff in a way that isn't repeatable. And again, because it's not repeatable, because there's no understanding of what success looks like and what your probability of success should be, we have these expectations that we should never fail. No, if you're doing something for the first time, like the first time you got on a bike, right? Or you put one of your kids on a bike to ride their two wheel bike without training wheels, right? Like, did they succeed every time, first time? No, but, but that's what we expect out of ourselves, right? Like we can never fall off the bike. We have to ride it first. And I, so I think that that expectation with some creative folks and not being willing to fail, it makes them more susceptible to burnout. I mean, one of the things that I struggle with most about marketing is I can do great work and nobody goes to it. Nobody sees it. The ad copy doesn't work. It, it's still beautiful. It's still beautiful. And it's also ineffective. And that's the part that's hard because there's no way to, we measure against efficacy, but particularly folks who are marketing, you know, it's random. There's a degree of randomness to it. Sure. You, you test, you test, you focus group, you have all these yeah. meetings about positioning and you put it out there and flatlines. Right. right. It's, it's more of a problem now for a lot of people than it was maybe two or three years ago. Yeah. Well, and so I have a friend, uh, so I have a friend who works in gas production, right? And he says a co-op that, that produces gas and at the start of the pandemic. So like April ish, 
he and I were talking and he says, look, the rules don't apply anymore. Like, what do you mean? Like, this is guess. This is the, the rules apply, right? It still goes bang if you light it up. And he's like, no, no, no. He says, what we know in the gas industry is, is if I lower the price, people buy more gas. And so what we did is we lowered the price, but people didn't buy more gas because people weren't going anywhere. Everybody stayed in their home. There was no commuting to be had. And it totally- When you're buying gas for your lawnmower, you only buy it like a gallon or two at a time. Exactly. <laughs> right. You know, it's not like a 30 minute commute where you burn, you know, five gallons a day or 10 gallons a day. So it's different. The rules change. And I think that's one of the scary things about COVID and about what's happened. But there's a lot of really scary things because none of our rules work anymore. What do you do about conferences? Oh, they're all virtual. That's great. But how do I walk around a, an exhibit hall and get the thing I am going to throw away in four years? That's, you know, whatever it is, a stress ball or something. And how do I get that stuff? And how do the, the marketers get the conversations they want when we don't have events? For our audience of B2B marketers, a lot of them who are working to market technology solutions, we talked about 50% of marketers say they've experienced burnout. 89% of technologists that was reading this morning yep. say they feel immense pressure at work and trying to keep IT up and running through the pandemic. 84% of technologists found it difficult switching off from work at the end of their day. Let's talk about burnout on the other side. Marketers are experiencing burnout, but yep. the people they're trying to reach, the people they're trying to influence are more likely to be burned out than they were 12, 15 months ago, I'm thinking that you're not terribly receptive to marketing messages or sales calls if you're feeling burned out. No, you're, you're not. You tend to shut down. I mean, if you think about it as, an, as an, a cousin to depression, depression is shut down, right? It's your body's way of saying, none of this matters anyway, so I'm just going to try and shut down and ride it out. Um, I think what does work when someone is in this state where they're on the edge of burnout, when they're in burnout, when they're in depression, whatever, is a real connection. It's, you know, it, it sounds silly, but you know what? If their dog runs through the back of their Zoom and the virtual background doesn't block it out, ask them what their dog's name is. I know that sounds silly. You're like, oh, I'm off topic and I'm not selling them my, my, my software. But the good news about having no boundaries between things is that you can ask those questions and it's not quite as intrusive anymore because you have just seen the dog. I think one of the interesting bits about that is there's an underlying anxiety as well. So there's burnout sitting there, um, but there's also an underlying anxiety. When people have trouble shutting off, it means they have an unresolved, unspecific fear that they don't know how to process. Um, and in the case of the technology folks, it's hey, is my business still going to be here next week, next month, next year? Are they still going to need me? Are they still going to need this? Well, what happens if the budgets get tight? You know, or am I the first to go? And, you know, the thing about anxiety is um, anxiety draws its power through its secretism. It, the fact that you don't, you won't call it by name, right? And when the individuals are willing to call it by name, you know what? I'm feeling a little anxious right now. All of a sudden, the anxiety gets let out like air out of a balloon. You know, marketers can use that because people are reflexive 
and the marketer can say, I'm a little anxious uh, to talk to you about your new storage solution or your new HR software or whatever, and say, I'm a little anxious to talk to you about it because I know you're just trying to keep the lights on. Why don't you tell me about how to keep the lights on? And so we've engaged a conversation, but more importantly, the marketer has expressed their hum- their humanity and they've given the other person an opportunity to reflect that back to them and say, wow, thanks for sh- saying that. Thank you. You know, I'm anxious too. Boy, the, the numbers for the company are pretty shaky right now with everybody staying at home. I don't know what we're going to do. And you create that opening for human connectivity that we're all craving right now. We're social creatures and we've been told we can't socialize. And we, we've heard as marketers to have empathy in our messaging and our communications with people. We've heard to show our human side, but you hear that for a year straight and it starts yeah. to sound a little trite, right? It yeah. starts to sound like, yeah, I know, I know. I think one of our podcast guests from the fall told me uh, that someone told her, I'm sick of being asked to be resilient. And the pandemic has become like, it's, it's sort of the elephant in the room. Um, You know, we can sit here and work it into our conversation, but it's like, we're all dealing with it, but nobody wants to talk about it anymore. I think, you know, there's this interesting thing. This is one of the most challenging things that I would teach people. And I'll tell you, I learned this from working with some recovery groups, some of our some of our philanthropy is targeted at recovery groups and it's what you think it is. When you start those conversations, whether it's a group of teens or adults, and there is a way to start with vulnerability without becoming vulnerable. That trick, that ability to, to, and I wouldn't call it empathy. I wouldn't say, you know, and it's not resilience and it's just like, it's just being real, but in a way that's safe. You know, we would we would teach people to to open up with how they're feeling, and then we we had a protected space, so we so we would make sure that they wouldn't get hurt for that. But but how do you, as a marketer, as a human being, have a conversation and start it? You know, we were talking pre-show a little bit about how just how are we right? Like how you and I've known each other for a couple of decades, and and what's real, right? Like what's life? What's family? And you maybe you you maybe can't do that as a marketer with somebody you don't know, but boy, you could tell them that you tripped over the dog, spilt your coffee, and broke your favorite coffee cup this morning. If that's what happened, you know, rather than saying, "Oh, I'm fine." So if I'm a leader and I recognize signs of burnout among my team, what is my best course of action? What is what is probably the first thing I should do? Well, so let me give everybody a model. Uh, this is the model that we use in Extinguish Burnout Book. And by the way, um, Terry and I made the decision, my wife and I made the decision, all the stuff on Extinguish Burnout is free to everybody at least until the end of 2021 as a response to COVID. We, we, we decided, like, it, it's not money-making. It's everybody go there. Uh, but right. the, model, the model that we share is uh, a bathtub model. So the bathtub is our personal agency. The water in the bathtub is our personal agency. There are three things to fill it up. And one thing that drains it, all four of these have valves on it. The three things that fill it up are our results, the support we get, the self-care we do. The thing that drains it are the demands that we have placed upon us. Now, uh, I tell you that because what I tell managers to do is work on the valves. Go change the valves 
And let me let me tell you how. So results. It's all about perception. If you are not recognizing the results that your people are getting, they don't know they're getting results or they may not know they're getting results. So make a point every day, every week, every month, whatever, figure out what are the results that you really feel like were important and make sure you talk to people about it. Two is support. Um, support, when I'm talking to an individual, I'm telling them you've got to go ask for it. When I'm talking to a manager, I'm telling them you got to go ask what they need, right? Both sides own this problem. So for a manager, uh, the questions are what's in your way? What's preventing you from doing it? How am I making this harder than I need to? And then figuring out what you can do to that. And sometimes you can solve the problem and sometimes you can't, but at least you can make the effort. And again, the connection counts. Um, third is self-care. Um, that one's a little harder. Uh, well, certainly when we're, when we're all in the same space, it's easier to do and just say, go home, right? <laughs> like, but it's like, if you're already home, what do you tell them to do? Um, you know, like, I'm going to lock your account out. You're not going to be able to log into anything for five hours. Ah! But, but how do you get them to prioritize the self-care? And by the way, you do that with doing it by example. If you work 20-hour days and you're up at three in the morning texting everybody else or emailing everybody else, you're not going to have a lot of credibility for self-care. So last little bit's demands. And demands another place that you can really affect a lot of help. What people don't realize as the individual is you can turn that valve off and you can say no even to your boss or you can say not now or you can say not with the other things that I've got. And when you flip that over and you start talking about it from the management side, the question is when you add something to someone's plate, what are you taking away or what are you deferring? When I add, you know, when I add something to somebody's plate here, I'm saying this is the thing I need you to do today. I'm sorry I had to rearrange your schedule. And oh, by the way, I know these three commitments that you have that were today and tomorrow and the next day, I know you're going to slide them by a day or two or whatever it takes. And I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm explicitly acknowledging it. And so, so that's, this, that's, you know, for managers, it's how do you recognize what they're doing? How do you support them and what you're asking them to do? How do you encourage them to do self-care? And how do you make sure that when you make a new demand that you're not overwhelming them? You told me back when we first touched on burnout, when we recorded the change management episode, getting a new job is maybe a temporary fix if you're suffering yep. from burnout, but it is not a permanent solution. So the idea that I am burned out at this job, I'm going to go do something else, do it somewhere else, might not have the results you think. Yeah. I think there's one thing. So let me first clear up the fact that people think that it, burnout's about jobs. And I know the World Health Organization says that. Um, I'll go on record very directly. They're wrong. You can get burnout at home. You can have children who are teenagers who won't listen to you. And if you want to feel ineffective, have a teenager because they will prove to you that you're going to be ineffective. So first of all, you've got to start with this can happen anywhere in your life. Social, family, work, doesn't matter. Um, so I have a really good friend uh, who ran a business for himself. And he was always overworked. Um, he had some really amazing things he did. And he'd forget to do his invoicing for three months. And anybody who's run their own business knows that that's just not okay. Um, his clients put up with it. But his life was always out of balance. And so he joined a large organization, a large technology organization. And he was there about a month. And I saw him. 
And he was back to the same space. He was overwhelmed, overworked, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he's like, well, you know, I'm working for blah, blah, blah. And there's all these things. I'm like, yeah, okay, fine. There's all those things. You're going to have all those things at the next job too. You, you've got to ultimately decide, how do I manage my personal agency? How do I ensure that I have the energy I need to take care of me? And, and a lot of that for him was saying no, right? Like people really, truly, we have this thing about telling your boss no. I encourage you to do it respectfully, but do it. See what happens. I don't think that people realize that they can tell their boss no and their boss is going to be okay. Like I would rather you tell me no, you can't get that done by Thursday than for you to stay up all night Wednesday and, and, and kill yourself on it. I'd rather you tell me that. I feel like there's, there's this perception of like the stereotypical boss and whether it's a media, like from movies or television of the, you do as I say, or you are out of a job. Yep. I've never worked for someone like that. Yeah. But, but deep down inside of you, there's still a part of you, right? That feels that because it's so in our culture and in our media and right, we still feel it. You know, I, and I always think of Dilbert and the pointy haired boss because that's, it just is a funny thing for me who, you know, the pointy haired boss never listens to Dilbert. Uh, and, and I don't think that most of us, some of us certainly do live in those worlds, but with those kinds of bosses, but I don't think most of us live there anymore. I think the world's changed. There's this perception that things have changed permanently, that some sort of hybrid work model, flex work models, and some companies have thought my company has adapted to this and many will or are expected to. The blurred lines between home and work over the past year are, are going to continue. So, so what happens? Do people get better, do you think? Do the organizations get better at helping people understand you're working, you're at home? Or are we just stuck in this, the balance is going to be all out of whack for the foreseeable future? What do you think happens? Well, everybody adapts, right? Um, and I do think that there are changes, right? There are definitely changes. We th This is a tectonic level shift. And I don't want to be in the commercial office space business right about now because, or commercial construction of office space, because I can't imagine that that business is going to be good for a couple of decades. But, but I think we're seeing it happen already. So a couple of weeks after they got sent home, people were all on their dining room tables with, with chair, wooden chairs. And then people realized, oh, I need faster internet. If you've not seen the, the, the uptick stats on, on internet bandwidth, they're kind of funny. And we're seeing people buy more home office furniture. We're seeing a lot of movement in the home market. Now here, think about this for a second. Um, it's a global pandemic. You know there's germs everywhere and you want to stay inside your home. And yet home sales are booming. Why is that? Well, because all of a sudden, if you're working from home, you need an extra bedroom or two so that people have offices. And so they need bigger homes to be able to support that. And so I think we're, we're, we're getting that. And I think that even if you're in a metro area and getting additional space is hard, we're finding that people are learning ways to make better use of their space and to be more comfortable and to, and to, to have that on-off switch, that mental on-off switch. Um, so I think we're going to continue to adapt and figure out how to do multi-use things. 
uh, you talk about we don't have second screens. So here's, here's a practical example, right? So, oh, I work from home, but I don't have a second screen. You know what? If you have a TV that was manufactured in the last 10 years, it's got an HDMI port. And if you got an, a laptop that's been manufactured in the last 10 years, it's got an HDMI port, plug Put it in. Put them all together. <laughs> plug it in, right? And that's one of those things where you're like, oh, and you and I are like, we've done this for a long while. And so it's, it's like obvious, but for somebody who's new at home, like their TV is a TV thing and their, and their computer's a computer thing. Um, and so I, I see that continuing to evolve. Um, I think that the, the, the real challenge that people are going to have to work on is the on off switch. I am working. I'm not working. And whether that's a clock, they say I don't work after five or six or whatever the number is, or whether it's a, I close the lid of my laptop and that means I'm not working anymore. Um, I think people have got to have that switch. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you about your home life for a second. Okay. So talk to me about dishwasher. You got a dishwasher. Just how good it. are you at low? <laughs> how oh, great. Not your first one. I hope. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> one day you wake up and there's a puddle under the dishwasher and you, it's time to upgrade. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's a good reason. So, okay. So in your house, how, how good is it? that the, the dirty dishes get loaded and it gets washed and it gets emptied. It's, it's a very smooth process. We all, all four of us down to the five-year-old load our own dishes. We have a lot of chip dishes because of that, but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a, it is something that has been ingrained from a young age in our children. And so how do you know if the dishes are clean or dirty? There is a light on the dishwasher. So when it is done and the load is clean, the white light is on and it is usually, and we usually run it at night and empty it in the morning. Well, there you go. So you have a system and you have a signal and you have a, a plan for how you do this. And so in our house, we have an older dishwasher, which has not yet broken. And so we've got a sign on the front, clean and dirty. And that simple sign allows us to function with the four of us here and we know what to do and this means a and this means b and we've got to find those systems for each of us and and you've got a system that works in your house and i've got a system that works in my house it doesn't make either one of them right or wrong but what it is is it's a system that allows us to function and it's a system that most people have never had to build they've never had to work from home like for instance, you, you mentioned your kids know when you're in your office, you're working. That's a simple thing, but it's a signal that they get. And, and we've got to figure out how to signal ourselves. People who, for the first time, are trying to manage this, and particularly those who have kids who are virtual homeschooling, whatever, they struggle with, well, I had to help Jimmy for 10 minutes here, so now I have to work 10 minutes extra. And they're trying to do this like mental math in their head about this this thing was worth five minutes and I've got to give them an extra 10 and whatever it is. That does get easier as you do it more, as you learn more, and as you draw harder boundaries, even with your kids, right? Like for you, they know that you're in your office and that works, but, but, but if there's never been an office that people go to, if mommy's never had her office at home, the kids don't know. So... I think, you know, your, your core question, which is, you know, what do we do? And I think the answer is we adapt. We build systems. We learn to signal to each other and ourselves when do we stay home and, and 
when are we really quote unquote at work, even if we're still in the walls of the house? So you mentioned Extinguish Burnout, the website, the resources that are available there. Can you give us a quick rundown before we go? What can people find if they go to the Extinguish Burnout site? Uh, so on Extinguish Burnout, there are a number of things, including a whole bunch of assessments. There are uh, a set of articles that people can read to figure out uh, how to deal with burnout, how to cope with it. The course, which is built on the book, is free and available. You can sign up. The code is COVID-19. And that'll get you everything you would want to know about burnout and how to recover from it. I think if if folks are feeling burned out and they go there and they can't find the resource they want, send me an email. I want to know about it because I, I, I feel like we actually hit this one fairly solid. All right, Rob Bogue, thanks again for being on B2B Nation. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Mike. Thanks again to Rob Bogue for joining us on this episode of B2B Nation. Those free resources, once again, for learning about burnout can be found at the Extinguish Burnout website. If you like this episode, leave us a review on the podcast platform of your choice and be sure to share it with a friend. Remember that B2B Nation wouldn't be possible without the help and support of the Technology Advice crew. Thanks to Amy Dunn, Sarah Wingate, and Emily Whalen, our showrunner extraordinary. Thanks to Pneumonics in the Guild for composing the greatest podcast theme song of all time. Catch you next time on B2B Nation.